This is us. Stories that when weave together, write a kingdom story. A kingdom story about how we love, build, and send people with the gospel. Erie is the fourth largest city in Pennsylvania. Over four million people visit this flagship city each summer for experiences like Presque Isle, the Erie Art Museum, the Erie Philharmonic, the Sea Wolves, and more. We live in a place where the snowbelt is no understatement, but the warmth of family and friends keeps us committed and devoted to our city. From the very first day our church existed, our goal was to love the people in the city. Pastor Larry Albanese spoke these words of confidence, tell the skeptic and atheist there is a God, and if they don't believe, send them to Erie First Assembly and they shall see for themselves. Our history has been rich with men and women who heard the call and responded. People who chose the approval of God over the approval of men, full of leaders who fixed their eyes not on what was temporary, but what was eternal. And Jesus has used our church as a lighthouse in this community for years, but we are not done yet. We are seeing an alarming change in our community and across our nation. Only two in 10 Americans under 30 believe attending a church is important or worthwhile. This is an all-time low. 59% of the millennial generation raised in a church have dropped out. And 43% of Erie's own population don't associate themselves with any faith at all. Erie's crime rate is 29% higher than the rest of the state of Pennsylvania. And there are 626 children in foster care just in our county alone. A new chapter is being written in our story, full of new challenges. So it's time. It's time for Erie First to carry out its mission with renewed focus and urgency. Erie First exists to love God and his people, build Jesus-centered lives, and send out spirit-led disciples. Love, build, and send. A biblical mission that is worth spending our lives on. A biblical mission that will continue to write the kingdom story of Erie PA. As we love, build, and send people for the gospel, it will change the statistics. One life, one family, at a time. And this ripple effect could change our state, our nation, and it might even change the world. Together, we can accomplish so much more than alone. God will move in ways we can't even dream when we become a church full of players on the field, not fans in the stands. A church of contributors, not just consumers. This part of the story is about you. We need you to attend service so you can engage in spirit-led worship and prayer. We need you to join a group so you can experience anchored teaching in a redemptive community. We need you to serve on a team to be set up for purposeful outreach and radical generosity of your time and resources. These are the values that if we align with them, our ship will steer toward kingdom purpose. This is us. Stories that when weave together, write a kingdom story. A kingdom story about how we love, build, and send people with the gospel. Will you help us write the next chapter? This month is so exciting uh, because we are exploring and digging deep into the vision of our church. And so you saw there in that video just a little explanation of who we believe God has called us to be as a church. And we ended last week with this prayer, but today I want to start with it. So we're going to put it on the screen. Let's pray this together as a church as we start this week off. You ready? God. We surrender our hearts so we can love you and your people. Jesus, we give you our lives, build them around you. And Holy Spirit, we promise we will go anywhere you send us. 
Now, our mission statement of love, build, and send comes straight out of the scripture and models the early church in Acts 2. And what we clearly see in the early church is that building Jesus-centered lives happens best in community. That building Jesus-centered lives happens best in community. And so I was reading this week a book by Chris Vallotton. He's an author. He's a preacher from a church in California called Bethel. And he said this about community, and it struck me. Everybody carries a bucket of water and a gallon of gasoline around with them. And the truth is, we need to hang out with people who pour water on the fire of our fears and gasoline on the passion of our dreams. And I love that because I feel like that is what is describing community. What a beautiful description of what Christ-centered community should look like. So why is it so important? Why is community so important for believers? It's not just a good idea. It's not just a great suggestion. It's not just what pastors say to get their congregations to come to church. (laughs) Community is God's idea. And we're going to see that in the scripture today as we talk about it. But one of the main reasons is because God formed us to be for each other. We are literally built to live in community. That is how God formed us. In Acts 2, 44 through 47, this is a, a scripture that's talking about what's happening in the early church And it says, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think the results that we see in that scripture that the community grew showed that they were doing it right. They were doing something right because the community was growing. And they did things together. They did all these things together. When the Acts 2 church existed, it was very radical for them to uh, show concern for the poor. It was very radical for them to sell all their property and possessions, giving to everyone in need. This was not normal. Communities weren't doing this. And so the scripture is showing how different this community looked because it was built around Jesus. It was Christ-centered versus other communities. It was radical for a group of people, and it is now, to say that they were for the poor, that they're, they're for the children, that they're for the women, they're for the people that looks like they give no added value to the community. The men were the workers. They were the ones that, that produced things. But this community said, listen, we're going to go completely against culture, and we're going to acknowledge the least among them. We're going to do what Jesus says. We're going to acknowledge the least And what I believe what was happening here is that the church was beginning to see and understand who God formed them to be. And the truth is that God formed them to be for others, not to be for themselves. You know, our our selfish nature, the scripture talks about this, we're kind of born this way. Our selfish nature uh, always points us back to our needs and ourselves and the things that we need. In fact, if we just put ourselves in autopilot, we are often always thinking of ourselves. It's counterintuitive, actually, to think about someone else. I saw this clip this week that I feel like describes this concept well. I want you to watch and laugh with me this morning. I don't get the mirrors, you know? I don't want to see myself working out. I know what I look like. That's why I'm going to the gym. Obviously, there's some people that do want that, right? They're like, if I'm going to be working out, I want to look at something like myself. I want to look at myself while I work on myself. 
I should do a recording so I can listen to myself while I look at myself, while I work on myself. As I leaf through myself magazine, read how myself can improve myself. Maybe I'll go to my Facebook page and look at photos of myself. Read what myself has written about myself. Yo soy muy importante. When we are selfless and helping others, we are building Jesus-centered lives. When we are being the most like Jesus, when we are caring for the needs of one another in our community, because God formed us to be for each other. So this morning, I want to take a closer look at the life of Nehemiah for a moment, who was a great visionary. He was a great leader in the scripture, and he can see why community is so valuable. Um, So I want you to just buckle up this morning because there's some gold in the scripture if you'll dig with me, okay? So here's what we're going to look at. I want to pick up in Nehemiah 3 and 4 where we're watching this process unfold for this great leader. So last week we saw that Nehemiah was burdened and brokenhearted because the walls in Jerusalem were shattered and broken. And God answered his prayer by giving him a vision to fix them. Okay, so Nehemiah had a problem. He came to the Lord. He said, fix my problem. God said, great, I'll fix your problem through you. Nehemiah said, oh, (laughs) not what I expected. I like to look myself, you know, (laughs) this is going to ruin my plans. And God said, listen, I'm going to give you a plan. When the people learn how to live for each other, my mission will be accomplished. And so the walls in Jerusalem had been in rubble for 72 years. In fact, there were efforts to build, rebuild these walls, but none of them were successful. And what we see in these chapters is so profound because Nehemiah is able to rally these people and help them operate in true community. He gives them vision, he gives them purpose, and he teaches them how to live and depend on God in community. And for 72 years, this effort was unsuccessful, but Once Nehemiah taught them how to live in community, they rebuilt the walls in 52 days. So what took 72 years that they couldn't accomplish, and 52 days, once they became a team, once they understood community, they were able to do. Now, every city in the Old Testament was surrounded by a strong wall, by a strong gate. Um, In fact, uh, the, the kind of cultural perspective would be if today you lived in a house that had no locking doors or windows. You just had to like hope every time you left that nobody ransacked the place. If a city didn't have a wall, then they were very unsafe. They were very vulnerable. And so they would build these walls. And these gates and these walls allowed people to enter and exit in a very controlled manner. The city walls and gates were built to withstand assault. Walls were often several feet thick. In fact, the scripture talks about how they raced chariots on top of the walls. Okay, this is no small potato, little put a gate around your garden for the summer thing. Okay, this was a big deal. They made these huge withstanding walls that were thick. And above the main gate of every city, there were watchmen that stood guard, and they monitored all traffic entering and leaving the city. They could see enemies approaching um, so they could be closed in time. Hey, they're coming, they're coming, and they close up the gates so that they're safe. And the purpose of both the walls and the gates is to protect the city, its inhabitants, and its possessions. 
So in Nehemiah 4, we see that the gates are being rebuilt, that they assigned a team, and, and the, these teams were carefully selected, and these gates, the, these guards at these gates were carefully selected. Nehemiah says in the scripture, he wants the guards at the gates to love God more than people. He wants the people that are going to decide what come in and out of this city to be godly people with, with a mind of Christ to know this is a good thing to come in, this is a bad thing to come in. And so in Nehemiah chapter 3, it talks all about these gates that are restored, and there were 10 that were restored. And theologians believe that even the order in which these gates were restored painted this beautiful picture of Christ's redemption. It was a foreshadow, a story being told. The first gate they restored was the, the sheep's gate, which is the, the sacrifice the first one, as if to say, you can't get anywhere in your relationship with Christ until you accept that he died on a cross for you, that he is the, the sacrifice for your sin. And it was this foreshadow. The, these people were rebuilding these gates. They were telling a story so much bigger than they even understood, than they even knew. I want to just give you one example of one gate. We could talk about this all day long, but Nehemiah 3.26, it talks about how they, they were restoring gates and they got to the water gate. Not the famous hotel, okay? This is Jerusalem, the water gate. And when they got to the gate, it didn't need any repair. And they were baffled. They were baffled that, that this particular gate didn't need any repair because everything else had been in shambles for decades. And what's interesting is the theologians believe that the water gate in the Old Testament, water often re represents the word of God. So what God was speaking through this gate not needing repair, the scripture's reminding us that his word lasts forever. That his word doesn't need repair. That his word endures and lasts forever and lacks nothing. And it's pure and it's refreshing and it's enduring. And, and it wasn't just ironic that this particular gate was in top condition. This was God speaking a message to the people then and speaking a message to us now that his word never fails. His word never needs correction. His word never needs repair. Isn't that beautiful? And so just like the Watergate example is a message from God, these families, these teams of builders and gate guarders, I believe are showing us a, a word picture of what it's like to live in community as believers. That real redemptive community is best illustrated by the guards at the gates of our lives. As we pick people to be part of our lives, to speak into us, to have conversations, these people that when they see the enemies coming in our life, they say, duck, cover, get out of there. That pattern of thinking is going to get you in trouble. Don't let that doubt overwhelm you. Watch your words because what you say is what you begin to believe. Don't, don't, don't be alone with that opposite gender person and, and think that, that nothing's going to happen. you got to guard yourself. You gotta make sure that you don't take one step in the direction of the enemy. That's who I want at my gate. The people that fear God more than me and who stand there and say, listen, let me remind you of God's faithfulness. The purpose of the guards at the gate is to protect us and of the purpose of community is to guard and protect and help our faith persevere. That's the purpose of community. Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, those are all cities in in the Old Testament, they all had real prosperity when their walls and gates were healthy. And I believe so goes our spiritual life. When we have people in our life who will help us let the focus and the morals and the passion and the values of Christ in the gate, 
And they let, let the, the unholy behaviors and the foolish thinking and the things that, that aren't going to benefit us hit the wall. That these, this is when our faith is protected enough to grow. And so we need people at the gates of our lives, guarding those gates, telling us what comes in and what doesn't come in. And the opposite is true as well. When the enemy can get in the gate and enslave us, then our walls and our gates are weak and crumbled and our faith suffers. Do you see that word picture of what what Nehemiah is showing us, what God is showing us through this community? It wasn't just building a wall. It was God saying that these people that you're watching go get together and do something incredible for God is an example of how I want you to live. All right, so in Nehemiah 4, we see that the builders are, are restoring gates, they're restoring walls, and they acquire some hecklers. Okay, so Nehemiah 4, 1 through 12 says, when Sanballat heard that we are rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Sanballat actually means, the, that name actually means hate in disguise. And so in so many ways, again, metaphorically, we see, I believe that Sanballat represents the generations of opposition to Christ and his gospel. It represents all these years of people looking at Christians saying, they don't understand it, they, they stand for the wrong reasons, they're, they're, their morals don't make any sense. And when you're trying to live out your faith, how many of you know you'll be criticized by somebody? You'll, you'll be questioned. You'll experience opposition. And this Old Testament passage is building, just bringing to life what the believers experienced for then and for all of time. That there's going to be these hecklers. There's going to be these people who question us. There's going to be the people who bring opposition. In fact, if you are not experiencing any opposition, you're probably not living your faith out loud enough. Because when we bring out the truth, the enemy comes against it. I don't know about you, and maybe, maybe you can less relate to being criticized by uh, people in your life, but I know with me, when I face a critic, sometimes I can refute them externally or, or ignore them, even believe in the moment what they're saying doesn't bother me. But it's when I shut the lights off at night, you know that moment? In that, that really quiet space before I fall asleep, and all, all of what that critic says, that, that pushing and that questioning becomes the voice in my own head that finally comes to life. Can I really do this? I mean, is this really what God asked me to do? Am I ever going to complete my mission? It feels impossible. Maybe what they said was right. And I believe that what God is saying is that when our theology and our culture collide, we make decisions. We make decisions under, under pressure, and we, we are forced to decide what to let into our gate. And you know what I need in that moment, that quiet moment? I need to roll over and punch Joel and say, quit snoring and talk me off the ledge. <laughs> Tell me that this isn't what, this is not the voice. The voice of the critic is not what God is saying to you, right? That there's faith, and we need guards at the gate. He doesn't really snore. I'm sorry. Maybe he does. Okay. <laughs> Nehemiah realizes that building this wall is an outward sign of what God is truly building. He can see this clearly, that community is what people need to live faith-centered lives. 
And so Nehemiah does something incredible. I want you to see in Nehemiah 4, 16 through 17. He, he's an incredible visionary. He's an incredible leader. And he says, all right, from that day on, after, after the man criticized him, he said, all right, listen, I have a plan. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. And the officer posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. And those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. So here's what the great leader said that was different than all the other leaders that tried to build this wall for 72 years. He said, look, we're not just going to quit because we have some people who don't like what we're doing. We're not just going to quit because somebody said that we aren't going to be able to get this done. We're not going to quit because there's some threat of some sort. Some of you are going to build and some of you are going to protect. And then we're going to switch. And while you have your hammer in your hand, carry your sword. Some of you are going to carry a shovel and some of you are going to carry a a sword. And we're going to be guards by night and workers by day. And it won't be easy and it won't be convenient, but it will be our lifeline. Nehemiah knew that protecting each other builds Jesus-centered lives. And Nehemiah said, draw a sword and fight for each other. And that's real community. We are not alone. We can do this together, but we have to fight for each other. Because there's going to be criticisms, and there's going to be questioning, and there's going to be difficult times in our life, and there's going to be things that we don't understand, and we're going to want to give up, and we're going to want to say... I don't know, God, I don't know if you're faithful. And what the scripture is saying is that protecting each other builds Jesus-centered lives. When you're too tired to fight, I'll fight for you. And then when I'm too tired, you fight for me. And that's what the scripture says community is. And I believe that this is why forgiveness is such a serious thing that Christ talked about. You know, he, he was so serious about us forgiving each other. Remember he says in the scripture, if if you don't forgive others, I don't forgive you. He said, listen, this is a big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal, and I think this is why. Because Jesus knows that critical spirits and gossip and hurtful words are so toxic because it will, ha- it will tear down and break up and get his followers off mission. And this is why community, healthy, forgiving, redemptive community takes a fight, but it is worth engaging in. It is worth the fight. So Nehemiah 4, 19 through 20, we continue in this passage. I love this part. He, he reminds us, then I, he, I said to the nobles, this is Nehemiah talking, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. He's acknowledging it's hard. This is hard. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. But wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there because our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. That this fight of being in community, this fight to keep our faith and persevere to the end and get to the finish line is a fight. But the scripture in Nehemiah is reminding us, but our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. We, we join God in the fight of protecting one another as we move toward the mission that God has called us to in community. Protecting each other builds Jesus-centered lives. Protecting each other, as we see here in Nehemiah, gets us further faster. It gets us further faster. 72 years of living for themselves and they couldn't get the walls rebuilt. 52 days living in the community and the city is safe. 
Look at what God can do. This is why he's showing us the value of it. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 reads this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that word that Paul uses in the Greek for nothing is translated kenosis. Kenosis, it's a word that describes self-emptying, just completely denying of self. On the cross, Jesus empties himself for the sake of community. And what the scripture is saying is that we need to be self-emptying. We need to give way of our own wills and desires and selfish ambitions and be servants to one another in love. So what if we measured community not by what we get from our others, not by the support that they give us in difficult times or the amount of people that check on us throughout the week, but what if we measured community on how often we got to support each other? Man, this week was killer. I got to pray with my friend who was struggling. I got to mow my neighbor's lawn because he was out of town. I got to make a meal for a mom who had a new baby. Oh, it was a great week of community. None of those things focus on what I got. Kenosis, self-emptying, redemptive community gives us the opportunity to empty ourselves into the community of God for each other. Now here, at Erie First, we truly believe in the power of community at this church. In fact, in the last 12 to 18 months, we have put a focused energy on it like never before. And if you haven't joined a group yet, or you have thought about it and you justified all the reasons why you can't, I want to challenge you. Don't do the next 72 years on your own. Do the next 52 days with like-minded believers and see what it does for your faith. Here's some people who did this last year, and you can see how it helped them. So watch this video. We have had an awesome inaugural year of small group ministry. We've had over 15 groups when we did our launch. We finished the year with 21 groups, almost 250 people registered. The response has been even greater than we could have anticipated. Uh, when we say love, build, and send, we really believe like the build portion of that mission statement was going to happen through small groups, in living rooms, and coffee shops, and here at the church throughout the week, not just one or two nights, but seven days a week, we wanted to have opportunities for discipleship to happen. But what I'm most excited about are the stories and the life change and the testimonies that come out of it. So I've told you some of the numbers, but what I really want to do is introduce you to some of the people who have benefited from our small group ministry in the last year. We didn't know anybody. And when we first arrived at Shane and Nora's house, I remember we were nervous and like didn't want to go up to the door and like knock. And, and then like weeks into it, we're walking into their house without knocking and getting closer with everybody. And instead of being in a huge church building, like we actually got to uh, grow together in smaller groups. And it's allowed us to go deeper with a church than we have ever gone before in any other churches that we've been at uh, because we are doing stuff outside of the Sunday service, which is absolutely necessary, but there's more um, that the church has to offer and that God wants us to be doing. The Lord started to use our friends, our new friends, um, in ways that 
we never would have had things come to fruition if we weren't in community connected and, and being vulnerable and um, letting people into our world and what we're going through, the, the things we're trying to do with job changes. And it allowed me to be vulnerable and have a place where I could say, I need help, I need prayer, I need, what do you think about this? And, and just an opportunity to share with others. Yeah, we would encourage, encourage people to join a group, take a chance, uh, be vulnerable. It'll just help you to grow in your own personal walk and be able to love on other people and be there for other people as well. My name is Beth, and I lead the group Mom Life. It's uh, great to be able to celebrate all the victories and the joys that we have, but also encourage each other through all the hardships. That's what I love most about our group is that so many different moms come from different backgrounds and different ways of parenting. And so it's really um, just a joy to be able to get together and to really support and learn from each other. Some of the things that benefited us from leading the group were learning to lead together, We've both done a lot of Bible studies in the past and um, a lot of different types of groups in the church um, based on people that we have things in common with. So we've done like a men's study or a woman's study. But this was a little bit different because our group was made up of people from all different demographics, all different walks of life. And many of the people had different experiences than I've had. And so that really helped us um, learn together as a family. It really felt like the body of Christ. We were the church together. Our daughter, Trinity, was really able to feel like part of the church. I think maybe for the first time, we were very intentional in telling her that this was also her group. And so she had ownership in the group. It's really helped her to feel to be part of a church, not just somebody on the outside watching what's going on, to really feel like you belong and to feel like that your church is actually family, an extended family. In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul uh, is writing to the church in Rome and he says that he desired to get to the church in Rome because he wanted them to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And this has been a verse that I've championed over our small group ministries and I say it all the time. If the apostle Paul benefited from and needed the encouragement of other believers, then obviously so do we. So I wanna encourage you to go to eriefirst.org slash groups to email me personally, or to sign up for a small group today. We really believe here at Erie First, discipleship happens through community. It's that community and sharing life with each other that makes all the difference. Relationship makes all the difference. So sign up today and benefit from a small group. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you for an awesome morning. We thank you for the opportunity to come into this place, to hear from your word, to be challenged, to leave different, and then for the, the opportunity to take a practical action step and get plugged in with other small groups, with other believers in a small group where we can learn more about you, learn who you are, and learn with each other so that we can be strong together. We praise you in this place. We thank you for all that you're doing in our church. We love you and worship you. Amen. All right, have an awesome week, everybody.